Welcome to Medical Student StudyCast, the podcast to help third-year medical students study for clerkships, where I have the questions and you have the answers. Hi. I am your host, Josh Bradford, a third-year medical student at Rocky Vista University. The goal of this podcast is to help medical students study for high-yield topics and actively test knowledge. I used several resources and picked out some of the highest-yield information. This podcast uses a question-and-answer format which can help test and gauge what you know and help identify the knowledge gaps. I encourage you to do your best to actively answer the questions. Let's get started. A psychiatric clerkship. In this episode, we will cover medications. So general advice, first off, I want to say that I don't get any payments or any disclosures from anyone, but I have to recommend Sketchy Medical, especially the farm section. I just think that they are the best resource for learning the names, classes, uses, and side effects of all of these medications and just about everything else you need to know for the test. So refer to them. There are a lot of other little details because they are focused for step one, so I'm going to try to add on some of the extra stuff. So some other advice when you come to questions, never pick a second-line drug unless there's a really good reason. So pay attention to weight changes, mood, and other medical conditions such as smoking or seizures that might indicate a different drug. Also never pick a long-acting drug unless the patient has proven that they are good on that drug orally. Learn all of the side effects, why they occur, and then the best treatment for the side effect This is going to be pretty valuable, so you kind of have to step out of the medication a couple of steps. The side effect of the medication, the purpose or reason why, why, and then the best treatment for it. First-generation antipsychotics are also called called typical antipsychotics, so I'm really going to try and refer to them as first-generation so that you don't get confused between typical and atypical as I'm talking. This is going to be a pretty long section. We're going to start off talking about psychotic and schizophrenic drugs, then go to mood stabilizers, and then go to antidepressant medications. So starting with schizophrenic medications. A 24-year-old male quits going to his counting job because he believes his boss has been replaced by an alien imposter. On presentation, the patient is agitated with a disheveled appearance. When you mention his boss being an alien, the patient perks up and whispers to you that the CIA placed a secret communicator in his brain where they speak to him directly. What medication should you should he be started on? Second generation antipsychotics tend to have a more favorable side effect profile than first generation antipsychotics. So, if this person had uh, metabolic syndrome such as diabetes and obesity, and then was also pretty agitated, that would be an extra reason to do first generation antipsychotics. And they tend to be a little bit more sedative and block the positive symptoms maybe a little more effectively. What is the mechanism of action for the first-generation antipsychotics? So these are D2 antagonists. So they block the D2 receptor. And where do they block it? First-generation antipsychotics tend to block most dopamine receptors, which is the reason for their effect, but also for a lot of the side effects. So we mentioned this earlier in the schizophrenic section, but in what system, dopamine system, are the positive symptoms found? 
So these are found in the mesolimbic dopamine system. Again, limbs go crazy, mesolimbic. Now, if we're going to give a uh, first-generation antipsychotic, there are two types, high potency and low potency. So name some of the high potency first-generation antipsychotics. These would be haloperidol and flufenazine as the most common ones. And what are some really common side effects of these? Extrapyramidal symptoms and prolactinemia. What do the extrapyramidal symptoms look like overall? These extrapyramidal symptoms are some sort of muscular symptom, are often uh, rigidity or muscular control. What drug has the fastest onset of action is used for agitated psychotic patients? This would be haloperidol. An intramuscular shot increases the onset of action and can be given to patients that don't want to take something orally. So if you have a really highly agitated patient, let's add that to our case before. So he thinks his boss is an imposter and he's being monitored by the CIA, but he's also really agitated and doesn't want to cooperate. An intramuscular haloperidol shot can help calm him down and take, begin to take care of some of the symptoms. What are some examples of low-potency antipsychotics? Chlorpromazine and thioridazine are two medications that you will commonly hear. What are the general side effects of these lower-potency first-generation antipsychotics? All right, so there's some antihistamine effects that lead to sedation, calms them down, anti-adrenergic effects that can lead to hypotension, but then the most important part is the anticholinergic, also known as anti-muscarinic effects. And what does that have? What does that show? This is a really common review for these dry mouth, constipation, increased heart rate, urinary retention. All right, you have a patient who is taking a antipsychotic, and then they show up with some blue and gray discoloration in their skin. They went outside and got a rash on their arms and you notice that their, uh, the bilirubin is high, what medication are they taking? This would be chlorpromazine. One way to remember this is bilirubin causes jaundice, jaundice is yellow, and a sun-exposed rash is red, so chlor or color promazine, so it has multiple colors that it causes in the patient. Now you have a new patient who has a prolonged QTC and um, corneal pigmentation. What medication did they get? This would be thioridazine. Now, on a different patient, they have uh, a male with decreased libido, some tender and slightly enlarged breast tissue, feeling fatigue as erectile dysfunction. Has recently started on an antipsychotic medication. First, what dopamine system are side effects mediated by? This is the tubulo-infundibular system. And how does it cause the side effects? So the dopamine suppression leads to an increase in prolactin. And what are the effects of the extra prolactin? Most of his symptoms earlier, so decreased libido, enlarged breast tissue, fatigue, erectile dysfunction, really common in men. And then for women, it might be galactorrhea and amenorrhea. Now, extrapyramidal symptoms are caused by a block of dopamine in what system? This is the nigrostriatal system. 
So if you think striatal, they stride, that's walking. The extrapyramidal symptoms mess with walking. So problems with the nigrostriatal system. Getting into some of the extrapyramidal symptoms, describe akesthesia. So akesthesia is a restlessness or a need to pace or fidget. Uh, it can present as a worsening of psychosis due to a worsening of agitation, even though you're adding an antipsychotic medication. So that antipsychotic medication increases the akesthesia and it makes them more agitated. And if that's the case, what medication do you give and what do you do? So in general, you can treat with any sort of anticholinergic. So that would be a benztropine or like a diphenhydramine. So that's a uh, antihistamine that has a lot of anticholinergic properties. You can also give propranolol, non-selective beta blocker, or benzodiazepine uh, to help with akesthesia. Remember the propranolol that is kind of more, a benzodiazepine might be last on the list. Propranolol would be a relatively common option. And then obviously you want to decrease the antipsychotic medication that they're on right now. Next, a patient starts taking flufenazine, is brought into the clinic in a panic. Her high eyes got stuck in one direction and her neck is rotated left with a hypertonic sternocleidomastoid. What is it? This is acute dystonic reaction and it usually presents with oclogyric crisis, torticollis, and hand wringing. So the eyes with the oclogyric crisis, torticollis is the hypertonic sternocleidomastoid that won't relax, so the head is turned to one side. And then the medication that you can use here, again, is anticholinergic. So that's the most common answer. And with the akesthesia, that's when you can add on the propranolol or the benzodiazepines to calm down that agitation. So again, that was an acute dystonic reaction. All right, a 34-year-old female with refractory schizophrenia is placed on multiple medications, including haloperidol, to help control hallucinations and psychosis. Eight months later, she comes into a follow-up visit. She has twitching of her face and smacking of her lips. What is this? So this is tardive dyskinesia. Tardive dyskinesia. So twitching of her face and smacking of her lips. For some reason with this one, I think of diving into the water, you hit face first. So tar dive affects the face first. It can occur during or even after the removal of an antipsychotic. And why does it occur? Well, the running theory for tardive dyskinesia is there's an upregulation of dopamine receptors, which makes sense if you're decreasing dopamine generally, then the body responds by upregulating. And so this can last a long time, and it can occur afterwards because that upregulation um, isn't really shown until the body resumes the normal dopamine response to those receptors. What is the treatment? So the best treatment is stopping the offending medication, since tardive dyskinesia will only get worse while it's on medication, and then you can use valbenazine. Again, valbenazine. So some of the symptoms may improve, but tardive dyskinesia can also be permanent. And again, it occurs in the face. And it's most likely to occur, as all of these are, with the high-potency antipsychotics. Moving on, a patient with hallucinations and delusions that are severe is started on medication. A few days later, this, this patient has a high temperature, is unable to answer questions, has profuse sweating, and overall muscle tension. What is this? 
This is the feared neuroleptic malignant syndrome or NMS. What is the very first step? So the first step is to stop the antipsychotic. But if they say, what's the most important thing to do? Well, if you want to treat the NMS, stopping the antipsychotic won't necessarily fix all of the problems. And so what are the medications that you can give to treat it first? This would be dantrolene um, because it can act a lot like malignant hypertension. So dantrolene basically decreases the activation of muscles. Or you can also give something that's very rare in psychotic symptoms. Sorry, psychotic syndromes. You can give bromocryptine or amantadine that activate the dopamine receptor. Now, this if this is the only other choice, pick bromocryptine. If there's no dantrolene there, pick bromocryptine or amantadine. And it's because it's life-threatening. So how is it life-threatening? What are the systematic systemic consequences of prolonged NMS? This would be intense hyperthermia, rhabdomyolysis with an elevated CPK. So watch out for that. If they put that in the descriptor, likely NMS if it's high. And then there's a up to 20% um, mortality rate for an untreated NMS. So let's move on to second-generation antipsychotics, also known as atypical antipsychotics. So what are the benefits of using these? There's some evidence to show that anti-atypical or second-generation antipsychotics treat positive symptoms but also are better treating negative symptoms. But then additionally, the side effect profile tends to be better, at least from the extraparental symptom side effect. And uh, what is the mechanism for treating the negative symptoms? So the action of the second-generation antipsychotics include the D2 antagonist, but also a partial serotonin agonist at the 2A receptor. Now, what are the general side effects for these second-generation antipsychotics? So generally, there's uh, some metabolic syndrome. There can be some prolactinemia, also some extraparental symptoms, and prolonged QT can be the most dangerous. Now we're going to get into some of the specifics of each one and why you might use or avoid each individual um, second-generation antipsychotic. Which second-generation antipsychotic would be most useful in an overweight person? There are two here that are weight-neutral, meaning that they are not shown to gain weight. This would be ziprazidone and aripiprazole. Ziprazidone and aripiprazole are weight-neutral. Now, a patient with Parkinson's disease cannot lower the carbidopa levodopa due to the worsening rigidity, but has started to gain psychotic symptoms. What can you give that person? So here you can give them quetiapine, and the reason is because it's a lower-potency antipsychotic, and so it can help with the psychotic symptoms, but since it's lower-potency, must much less likely to worsen the Parkinsonian symptoms. What about a patient with insomnia, delusions, hallucinations, depression, and anhedonia? Okay, so again, they've got insomnia, delusions, and hallucinations, and then the depression and anhedonia can kind of be negative symptoms. The key here is the insomnia. So again, quetiapine can be used in this case, but for a different reason. 
it can cause somnolence as a side effect, but you can use that side effect to your benefit. So what I want you to remember here is quetiapine, quiet, time to go to bed. Quetiapine, quiet, time to go to bed. So use quetiapine when a patient has insomnia. What about a patient where diabetes and weight gain isn't a big worry? Those kind of said backwards, but if you're not worried about um, diabetes or weight gain or any sort of metabolic syndrome, olanzapine can be used in these patients. What other condition can olanzapine be given if weight gain is needed? Okay, in this case, you can use olanzapine for anorexia nervosa, but only if nutritional rehab and CBT are ineffective and if the patient really needs to gain weight. So if they're below 15 BMI or have serious um, physiologic problems due to the low weight or lack of food. So a patient has amenorrhea and bilateral milky nipple discharge on a, t on a second generation antipsychotic. What were they given? So in this case, this is obviously a hyperprolactinemia, and the worst second-generation antipsychotic for this is risperidone. This is pretty high yield. Remember this one, risperidone has a higher incidence of hyperprolactinemia. And what system, again, is it blocking at a higher rate? So to cause the hyperprolactinemia, it's blocking the tubulo-infantibular system. And then patients on risperidone can also have extra pyramidal symptoms. It's still not as high as the high-potency first-generation, but it's an important uh, side effect to keep in mind. What is the most efficacious or effective second-generation antipsychotic? So the most effective second-generation antipsychotic is clozapine. So why isn't clozapine used first-line? Clozapine isn't used first-line because of the dangerous side effect of agranulocytosis. So what is agranulocytosis mean? This is a total absence of neutrophils, and it occurs in about 1% of patients on clozapine. So if you put a patient on clozapine, how many other medications do they need to have failed before they qualify? And that should be at least two other antipsychotics. And the question stem should give multiple failures make it pretty obvious in the fact that they are really needing an antipsychotic that works effectively. Also keep in mind that clozapine, like olanzapine, can cause weight gain. Those are two of the biggest weight-positive drugs. Let's change gears and talk about bipolar mood-stabilizing medications. A 27-year-old male with pressured speech elated mood who believes that his music will make him famous so he quit his job to follow his passions. He stays up late every night, gets a few hours of sleep, but hasn't had the time to really record any songs because he's been very easily distractible. What medication do you give him first? Alright, so if it's a single medication, you either want to give lithium or valproate. But if this patient has some intense delusions, maybe even hallucinations with it, this could be mania with psychotic features. And in that case, if you're going to give single medication, you give an atypical antipsychotic, such as quetiapine. And you can think of it like, shh, quieting the mind or quieting the mania. Okay, and then if you were going to give a combo medication, it would either be lithium plus quetiapine or valproic acid plus quetiapine. 
Now, if there are a problem with either lithium or valproate, what would be the next medication used? This would be lamotrigine. You can potentially use carbamazepine, but that would be very last line. Now, if a bipolar 1 patient is unable to calm down enough to talk with, what medication should be used to control the agitation of the manic episode? If there is extensive agitation in a manic episode, using haloperidol can really calm someone down. Also, benzodiazepines can help get a patient to sleep short-term, so you can use something like clonazepam. Haloperidol and potentially clonazepam really want to read what the problem is, if it's agitation but not really being able to get to sleep, or if it's intense agitation and a complete lack of cooperation, intramuscular haloperidol. These are less likely to be the first-line drug that you give unless there is a very specific indication for these. So if the manic episode is still present despite multiple medications, what can be done to stop this neurotoxic state? All right, it's really valuable to remember that you can use ECT, electroconvulsive therapy, to treat mania. Um, just like depression, it should be reserved for refractory cases, but because mania is a neurotoxic state, you might need to use ECT to pull them out of it. Now, what if the same patient had extensive delusions and even some hallucinations? I want you to remember what we talked about here. If you need a monotherapy, what would it be? So if you're giving a monotherapy for acute mania with psychosis, consider giving a second-generation antipsychotic like quetiapine. And then, if there is intense agitation and hallucination, you can consider giving haloperidol. Shifting gears to chronic medication, the same patient is getting discharged, has decreased the mania. What would be the first-line agent that you would give for bipolar 1? So you might want to keep them on the same medications that they had earlier, the quetiapine and lithium or valproate. Lithium has a lot of side effects, but is very, very efficacious and tends to be considered the first-line agent long-term for bipolar 1. Moving on to the next case, a 42-year-old female with a history of joint pain and a mood disorder is placed on lisinopril for hypertension. The next day, she has several falls, is confused, and vomited on the way to the hospital. What is the cause? So this might be a little tricky, but this is lithium toxicity. So joint pain indicates that you might be using NSAIDs, and lisinopril is an ACE inhibitor. Both of these things can have an effect on the kidney. So if she has a mood disorder, she might be given lithium. What are the important features that show this is lithium toxicity? All right, this is lithium toxicity because it has a headache and confusion, can have GI nausea, ataxia and tremors, that's what led to the falls, and then important to identify there can be some ECG changes. This is often caused by, like mentioned before, ACE inhibitors, NSAIDs, and then overdose of lithium or dehydration, which thickens the blood and can condense the lithium. Remember though, this is lithium toxicity. So this is short-term high dose of lithium for some reason or another. And then what are the EKG changes that can occur with lithium toxicity? This is a high yield little point. It's T wave flattening or U waves. Remember after the QRS, the little U wave. Now, 
this same patient is stabilized, got a good dose of lithium, and has put on other uh, medications for hypertension. What are some long-term side effects that could occur because she's on lithium? One important one to keep in mind is diabetes insipidus. It can be nephrotoxic. Lithium can be nephrotoxic. Also, it's important to have an idea of what the thyroid levels are because there's a chance of hypothyroid, um, long-term potential weight gain. And then the uh, woman is 42 years old. And so she may or may not uh, be attempting to have children, but it's important for her to know the lithium is teratogenic. And what can lithium cause? So it's contraindicated in pregnancy because of its genetic properties and can cause an Epstein's anomaly in the heart of the baby. Epstein's anomaly. What other bipolar 1 medication is contraindicated in pregnancy? So valproic acid or valproate can lead to neural tube defects such as spina bifida. What are some other side effects of valproic acid? So valproic acid can cause a pancreatitis and liver problems and agranulocytosis very rarely. And what are some potential side effects of quetiapine? Just understanding the general side effects for atypical antipsychotics, weight gain, prolonged QT, and then for quetiapine, there is the um, increased drowsiness. Thanks for listening to Medical Student StudyCast. I know it might seem short, but we're ending the podcast here because this episode was getting too long. I recorded it all as one session, so if you want to listen to Psychiatry Medications Part 2, that's going to be coming out in just a few days. In that episode, we'll cover SSRIs, random other treatments, side effect comparisons, rapid review, and of course, quote of the day. I really like to keep these episodes between 20 and 30 minutes, and I really do appreciate feedback. Please consider doing that, and thanks for listening to the podcast. If you appreciate this podcast, please consider supporting this content by donating to my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash medical student studycast or at anchor.fm forward slash medical dash student studycast. If you have comments or concerns, please contact me at medicalstudentstudycast at gmail.com. Share what you find helpful, changes you would like me to see, and personal experiences with the podcast. Remember, I am only a humble third-year medical student, so if I make any mistakes, feel free to let me know, and I will do my best to correct and provide the most useful, concise, and accurate study tool that I can. Disclaimer, this podcast is not meant to be the only resource of learning used for medical student clerkships. This podcast is not affiliated with Rocky Vista University and should not be used to diagnose or treat patients. I'd like to thank freemusicarchive.org for the intro and outro music.